Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like newborn babies, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us these exceedingly great and precious promises, that through them we might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up God's word of truth this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance on our study. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your word to guide and direct us, that you have revealed yourself to us, that we may come to know you. And coming to know you, we may increase our love for you as we also learn to live our lives based on these spiritual skills that you have given us, these tools that are provided so that we can face the uh, vicissitudes of life by trusting in you, by living according to your grace principles, by coming to understand uh, the, the riches of your word that we might uh, pattern our lives and walk in the light of your word. And Father, we pray that we might grow in grace and knowledge and that we may see the Holy Spirit produce fruit in our lives that includes our love for you and love for one another and indeed love for our neighbor as ourselves. And as we study these aspects of love, it is it is very challenging because it just runs so counter to the orientation of our sin natures. And our sin natures are just so corrupt and, and evil and self-centered. It just amazes us at times. But you loved us and demonstrated your love for us in that while we were so corrupt and obnoxious as sinners, Christ died for us. So for that, we are so grateful. And now we pray that you might help us to understand how to apply what the Scripture says about love, what it looks like, what its characteristics are, because they not only speak of your love for us, but how we are to love you and one another. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Last week, if you remember, we had some technical glitches that thankfully are not there, but that delayed us a little bit. So I didn't quite, uh, wasn't quite able to finish our study in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 1 through 7. Uh, this chapter is considered uh, the love chapter, and I think it's well titled that. It's 13 verses of great significance. And by reflecting upon it over time, we come to really understand what it means to love someone. God loves us. God loves each one of us personally. God loves us corporately as members of the body of Christ. God loves us in a couple of different ways. He loves us in one way that is unconditional, but it's not based on who we are. 
It's based upon who he is. And that's what we've learned is that God demonstrates his love toward us. It is God's love that um, was shown to us at the cross, John 3.16. And we come to understand what love is by looking at his love for us. And, and it gets terribly convicting because we know people. We live with people. We had people who brought us up who did not necessarily exemplify the greater qualities and virtues that we would like to have in those we love. But then we look in the mirror when we realize we don't have those qualities either some of the time or most of the time. But God loved us based on his integrity. That's the, that's the first idea. God loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And when we trust in Christ as Savior then, and we have received the imputation of his righteousness, then God's righteousness can love us personally. That's why you have different words used in the Scripture to describe God's love for us. You have agape, which is the word that's used in, or agapao is the verb, uh, used in uh, Romans 5.8 and John 3.16, which uh, in the context talks about this more unconditional love. But really the word agape can include everything. It's a broader concept. But it's used there, uh, specifically to indicate that aspect of his love for us. And then uh, in, in uh, Revelation 3.20 uh, talks about his, or, or actually it's in 3.19, his love for that congregation. It's the Laodicean uh, congregation, which he had just castigated because they were neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm, and he was ready to just vomit them out of his mouth. That doesn't mean they would lose salvation, but it's just a figure of speech that he's pretty disgusted with them, but yet it expresses God's love for them with the more intimate phrase uh, or intimate verb, uh, phileo, which is only used of God's love for believers. It's never used of God's love for those who are not yet believers, those who are unbelievers, because they do not possess the righteousness of God. So we've understood in our past studies that when it comes to God's commands to us as believers, there's really two different commands. One is a broader command. It comes out of the Old Testament, Leviticus 19:18, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So the object of our love is for anyone who comes in our path. That's defined, the neighbor is defined in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Anyone that comes across our path that is in need of something and that we can uh, show love to them and care for them to provide that. And so that is uh, biblical love for all mankind. That verse, Leviticus 19.18, is repeated six times in the New Testament, three times in the Gospels, three times in the Epistles. And there are other ways it's expressed in uh, James, uh, uh, last part of James 1 and James 2, uh, not showing prejudicial favor to those who come to, into the into the church based on their class or based on their money or based on their popularity or whatever. Uh, Philippians uh, 2.4, that we are to think 
and be concerned about uh, uh, what, not, not only our own concerns, but also the concerns and cares of others. Those are paraphrases of that concept. So we have this, this love for anyone like we love ourselves, which is a pretty low standard because we all automatically love ourselves. And then, as believers, we're commanded to love one another as Christ loved us, which is an impossible standard. And that reminds us in the third point down, our second point there, that Christian love is developed as part of the fruit of the Spirit. And we can't do it. We can't generate it. We can't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be more loving today. It is produced in us by the Holy Spirit as we grow. So it, it, it presupposes that we're growing, we're walking by the Spirit, and it will be manifest over time in our lives. Some of us wonder, well, when is that going to happen? Some days it happens a little better than other days. So third, we've seen that the love for God the Father is a result of spiritual growth, and in turn it motivates us to love others. And when we get into, when we finish 1 Corinthians, we're going to go to 1 John. I've been going through that, and I was wrestling with whether or not we would go back through that again. And that is just, there's so much said in 1 John about love for God and love for one another that you cannot talk about the topic without addressing, uh, addressing it in 1 John. But in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, which we looked at last time, we saw that love is the sine qua non of the Christian life. Sine qua non is a Latin phrase meaning without which nothing. It is what has to be there. Jesus refers to it in John 13, 34 and 35 is that we are to love one another as he loved us and that by this, he didn't say by this and five other things, he said by this, that our love for one another shall all men know that you are my disciples. And I always have to explain that because so many people think that a disciple and believer are equivalent terms, but they're not. There are a lot of believers that never become disciples, never want to be disciples. There are a lot of those who start as disciples, and then they're like those in John 6 that all left the Lord after after he taught, because what he said was hard, difficult, calling for really a commitment to him that was above and beyond what they were willing to give. And after they all left, Jesus turned to his disciples. And he said, so what are you guys still doing here? And Peter made that great statement. He said, but Lord, you're, you're the only one who has words of eternal life. So they understood that, that, that they couldn't get what the Lord was going to give them anywhere else. And so they were going to stick with him. So that is, that's what we're, we're studying is this significant love. And we saw this in the first part of 1 Corinthians 13, which we'll review in just a second. But we have an attempted definition here, and it's important to define this term. It's not defined in your dictionary. If you go through a, anything like a halfway decent course of writing in university or are in high school or younger, you will, you will, if your teacher's knowledgeable, understand the difference between a description and a definition. 
Though I had gone through college, majored in English, done a fair bit of writing, not only in college, but a lot of writing in both a master's program and doctoral program, I went to the School of Hard Knocks in writing when I worked for seven years as an editor at RB Theme, Bible, RB Theme Junior Bible Ministries as a ghostwriter for the pastor. And you, I only thought I could write before that. So that was a great part of my education, learning that you, you have to explain a lot of things. And you read a lot of Christian literature today, they just assume people know things. That was one of the problems I had with the way that homiletics was taught uh, when I was in seminary. Is it seemed like these guys are getting up and assuming people know a lot about the Bible that they don't know. And even if two-thirds of your congregation can pass a lengthy exam on their knowledge of scriptural facts, uh, people, places, and things, the other third don't have a clue. So you have to explain things to people over and over again for them to get it because unlike pastors, y'all aren't living in the Word almost day in and day out where it consumes your, you know, your every hour. So defining love, it's a mental attitude. See, you go to Webster's, you go to Collins, you go to Oxford Dictionary, and it says it's an emotion. But that's not derived from the Scripture. Scripture commands love. You can't command an emotion. Be happy. Well, you know, my friend just died, my dog died, my car got totaled. You can't command me to be happy. See, emotions are not the, cannot be commanded. So it's not an emotion. Uh, biblically, it's a mental attitude towards others which desires the best for them but not the best that we want, but the best according to God's standards. So you have to know who God is. We have to understand what the Scripture says His standards are. So we want what's best for others based on God's standards. And, um, and it thinks and acts. Notice it begins with thinking. It's a mental attitude, so it has to begin with thinking, but it always produces some sort of action. Sometimes that action is mental and it's prayer. Sometimes it's mental and it's not saying what we want to say. It's self-discipline. So it thinks and it acts toward others in a way that is consistent with that desire and the standards of God's integrity. It's impossible apart from a walk by the Holy Spirit. It just won't happen. It's supernatural, and the Christian life is a supernatural way of life, and that's what's described in Galatians 5, uh, 16 and following. So we saw that the application takes time. Um, it comes as a result of walking in partnership, walking in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Second, we are to think about it. We pray about our reactions to others. We're to be conscious of our responses to others. And that's, that's something that a lot of us aren't. We just sort of react instantly in some ways. And that's how we got into this study, because in Ephesians 4, it says that we are to be angry yet not sin. In other words, we can feel that anger welling up, but we're going to have the self-control to stifle it, and we have to figure out what do we, how do we not sin through these spiritual skills. And so... Um, that's what we're going through. So don't get discouraged. 
develop a biblical love for others. It's a lengthy process walking by the Spirit, but God can do it. There's with nothing, uh, with God, nothing is impossible. So we've gone through these uh, spiritual skills, and we're studying personal love for God, personal love for all. That's uh, not based on who they are, but based on the integrity of God, based on who God is, and then Christian love for other believers. And occupation with Christ is an aspect of that love because it, we have personal love for God, but it also develops our personal love for God, the Holy Spirit. So these three things often uh, work together, and the end result is then we can then count it all joy when we encounter various trials. I've used this illustration of the soul fortress. We, are, When we confess sin, we move into the soul fortress. But we can move out just as quickly by responding and reacting to situations and circumstances through mental attitude sin or overt sin, sins of the tongue. But we stay there by using these spiritual skills. And the, it, it takes time. And hopefully when you reach a certain age, you will look back over the previous decade or two and see some progress and realize that God is indeed working. So uh, these skills, personal love for God, biblical love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ all work together. So we're looking at what the Bible teaches about love and the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. Now, we see this, just a review of last week. Paul has these three statements he makes in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. Each one of them begins with an if in English. So you have the if clause, and, and then there is a then clause or a secondary clause. So what he is saying is, if I do X, Y, or Z, but do not have love. In each one, it's an expression of that. Do not have love, um, but have not love in verse 2, and but have not love in verse 3. The result is it's worthless. You can accumulate degrees in theology, but if you have not love, you're not getting anywhere in the terms of the Christian life. You can teach in Sunday school. You can serve the Lord. You can go on the mission field. You can be a pastor. But if you have not loved, then that doesn't count for anything. Because you're not growing, you're not emulating Christ, you're not walking by the Spirit because the Spirit would be producing that, that in you. So Paul is making some pretty strong statements here. And we saw last time that this if clause is setting up a hypothetical a lot of people have trouble with it. They think that this means that you can actually speak with the languages of angels. And I always say, well, give me an example of an angelic language in the Bible. Every time you hear an angel speak, they're speaking in Hebrew or in Greek or Aramaic in Daniel. You never hear them speak in anything, anything else. So how do you know there are angelic languages? It's hyperbole. Uh, the third class condition, there are different ways to express conditional clauses. That's an if clause in Greek. And I've just bold-faced the middle one. These are three different ways in which a, uh, a third class condition can be used. 
And it, it has the idea of expressing a hypothetical situation. So let's just t- think hypothetically that if I could speak with all the languages, all the human languages and all the angelic languages, which nobody can do, but if I had all that, all those communication skills, but didn't have love, then I would just be a sounding brass or clanging cymbal. And here Paul is kind of poking the... Uh, poking the pagan religions in the eye because you'd go to the pagan temples and they're trying to get the attention of their God with the symbols and with uh, sounding brass and all of that to wake the God up to get their attention. So he's just saying, it's as vain and useless as what goes on in a pagan temple if you have all the, were to have all these things and not have love. In um, verse 2, He says, and though, or we should translate that, if I were to have the gift of prophecy, which was still valid in the early church, and understood all mysteries, and even Paul didn't understand all mysteries. Other apostles were not even given the revelation first and foremost of some of the uh, uh, information, revelation that came to Paul in related to the church age, which it was is called the mystery doctrine. It was not revealed to others. It was not revealed in the Old Testament. And so Paul knows that he wasn't told everything. Otherwise, every epistle would be written by Paul. Paul's told some things. Peter's told some things. John's told some things. Luke's told some things. But none of them had a complete corner on everything that God wanted to be revealed to to mankind. But he's setting this up as a hypothetical. If I had the gift of prophecy and understood all mysteries and all knowledge and had all faith, see those three alls indicate it's hyperbolic. Nobody had that. So he goes to the extreme in each one of these conditions and he said, if I did, had all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I have nothing. He's really making his case that this is the sine qua non. This is the without which nothing, without love. It doesn't matter how we're serving the Lord. It, it's, it's empty. It's vain. It doesn't count for eternity. Love is important. We are to love one another. We are to love our the Father, as he loves us, because God loves each and every one of us. And then in verse 3, it's translated, it's the same same construction in the Greek. It's, if I were to give all my goods, if I give everything I have. Some people think that'd be great, but then you're not going to have anything to take care of yourself so that you can give more things. So he's saying, if I were to give everything to feed the poor... And though I, and if I were to give my body to be burned, if I was to be a martyr, but I didn't have love, it'd profit me nothing. That, that's the idea there. Now, as I pointed out last time, there are, uh, there's a textual variant there. Some of your translations would say that I may boast, but it's the, the better reading is the second word, kalthasomai, meaning even though I give my body to be burned, but have not love. Now that's what we've covered so far. Now we get into the characteristics of love. It's interesting that in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians four, when 
we were talking about love earlier in relation to unity in the body. Love puts up with things. Love puts up with bad manners. Love puts up with um, pain in the neck adolescence. Whether they're 13, 30, 60. Love puts up with it because it's your, our love is not supposed to be based on the behavior of the object of our love. And that's, that's a hard thing for us to do. But we get into these characteristics and it starts off with love, is, love suffers long. Now, I like that, transa- that translation, love suffers long, love is long suffering, the way it was put in, in King James, which indicates that it's, it, it's not pleasant. Patience is not pleasant sometimes. It's not easy. And sometimes it involves suffering, just just emotional. You're having to put up with, with behavior, obnoxiousness, that you don't really want to put up with. And you'd rather go somewhere else. But love suffers long. That's the Greek word, makrothumio. And thumos has the idea of anger. And macro means means the has the idea of long or slow on anger. It waits a long time, and it has a range of meanings, like most words do. It has the idea of patience, but it also has the idea of steadfastness. So it's not just patient. For sometimes we think of patient. Well, I've been patient long enough. Enough doesn't go in that, in this concept of patience. It is steadfast. It continues. Now, that doesn't mean you're letting yourself be walked over with, or if you're dealing with kids, that you let them get away with stuff. Or if you're dealing with a spouse, that you let them get away with stuff. But that you're still going to love them. You're going to be steadfast. And you're going to continue to do the right thing, despite others who may do the wrong thing. It has the idea, too, that in this mental attitude of patience, there's a calmness, there's a tranquility. There's a relaxed mental attitude there. See, the relaxed mental attitude really starts with the faith rest drill, but it also applies to our grace orientation. We're, We're relaxed while we're waiting for them to get their act together. I had a man in my church some years ago, and I'm not saying giving this example as this is what people should do. Sometimes I think it is what people should do. Sometimes people can't do this. And his wife left him. Now, he came out of a non-American culture. He was Japanese, so I think that had something to do with his ability to handle the situation. And nine years later, she came back, and he waited for her. And he prayed, and she came back nine years later. Now, that's, I've, I've never seen anybody else do that, but he did that. And that's an example of waiting, remaining calm, and being patient. We want people to hurry up and get, get straightened out now, or I'm going to move on to the next thing. 
And that can apply to a job. It can apply to your kids. It can apply to, uh, you know, your boss or somebody works for you. And so long-suffering is the idea of calm, relaxed, and waiting. Now, that doesn't mean that you that there aren't circumstances where you need to deal with something right now. So some people want to set up these these uh, sort of opposites. Well, I, I, I just can't put up with it for that long. Well, it depends on the circumstances and and the relationship. If you're an employer and you've got somebody who is constantly late or constantly lazy or constantly causing problems, then that's a different situation. Loving them means letting them go. They need to learn a lesson. So, you, But you do it with a patient attitude and not impatient attitude. Uh, enduring provocation without complaint. Another way to put this, I think, is when, when, thing, when people do things around us, we aren't to let our feelings get hurt. We're not to take it personally. That's really hard to do. It takes time to develop that. Pastors have to get a crash course in it the first two years there in the pastorate. I remember reading and hearing so many people say, well, you're, you know, the first couple of years you're in a pastor, you've got to develop a thick skin, and you can't take things personally. Um, when somebody goes out and shakes your hand going out and said, that was the best sermon I've ever heard, you'll never, Robbie's rule number one, remember, you'll never see them again. Uh, but don't believe them. And you don't believe the person who comes out and say, boy, you know, you just t- can't teach worth anything. You don't believe that either. You just don't, don't believe your press reports, good or bad. That's fine. Just let it go. Uh, it's nice to hear the good things. It's not nice to hear things that aren't complimentary. But I'm not here for your benefit. I'm here to serve the Lord. And so, And that takes a while for a pastor to understand that. Sometimes it takes a lot longer for a pastor's wife to understand that. Uh, that's one of the hardest things in the world for young pastors and their wives is pa- pastors' wives. If if a pastor somebody says something that just sl- just in a very tiny way is a bit of a slight to the pastor, the wife takes it that they just punched him out and he's he's KO'd and he's laid out on the ground. And she's mad. And I have seen this in many, many pastors. And, and pastors' wives have to learn how to handle that, too. And I've seen that. And I, I, this was uh, one of the problems uh, years ago. There was a study done at, West, at a, I think it was called Western Seminary. Now it's Denver Seminary. It was uh, uh, the uh, 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 Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary, the sister seminary to, Port, to the one in Portland, Oregon. And they discovered in the late 80s that they had, they were discovering that there was a high divorce rate among, uh, among their graduates. And usually it happened in their first pastorate. And a lot of what they discovered was that you had these baby boomers that had a prosperous lifestyle. They'd grown up. Mommy and daddy had given them everything they, they needed. They had nice cars. They had a nice home. Then they got married, they, and the guy is committed. The Lord has given him the gift of pastor-teacher, and he's called to the ministry. And they go to the first church, and they've got a 1966 Impala. 
that has to go in the garage every every other week. This was back in the 80s, remember, so that was a, an old, it's still a classic, but it was, it was just an old clunker back then. And they lived in a small 1,800-square-foot or 1,500-square-foot house. I, I, I can tell you the parsonages I've seen in some churches. Uh, a trailer, in a lousy trailer park is better than what some parsonages are like. And so these wives are sitting there thinking, you know, and he's getting criticized, and she, she doesn't like it. Why don't you just leave? You're the one who got called to the ministry. I didn't. I don't see anything in the Bible where the gift, the pastor's wife's gift is, is, uh, that that's a spiritual gift. And so these, these young couples were just getting out there and then they'd go back, she'd go back to her 10 year high school reunion and all of her, uh, sorority sisters have BMWs and Mercedes. You know, those were real popular status symbols in the, in the 80s. And they'd come back and they'd say, I'm out of here. And that was happening time and time again with these young seminary graduates. It, it's really hard. You know, these, these qualities from the spiritual life take time to develop. Love is, is patient. It suffers a long time. And it, it's not only the positive of being patient, but not being patient where you're holding some sort of mental attitude grudge against people and, and you want to get back at them and you want revenge, you want retribution uh, because of what they've done. I mean, I knew one pastor um, that there was a huge church, church split. He got fired. He wasn't doing anything wrong. His wife never got right with the church again. I mean, it hurt her feelings so bad. She, she was a constant hindrance. And finally, she just took a hike. I mean, this happens. Those kinds of things happen, and it happens in all kinds of different circumstances and situations. Love is not only patient and steadfast, it is kind. That's a real positive characteristic. Patience is a positive characteristic, too. It's doing something without certain mental attitude sins, but also doing some things positively, like being kind to someone you may not want to be kind to. Maybe they've slighted you in some way. Maybe they got promoted and you didn't get promoted. Uh, maybe they said something that really hurt your feelings. But we're to be kind. Love doesn't envy. So somebody else got the promotion and not you. Now you've got to deal with the fact that, that you're struggling with envy or jealousy or uh, resentment because they have something that you earnestly desired legitimately and you got passed over. But guess what? God's in control and God's taking you through that test to see if you're learning to trust him instead of trying to promote yourself all the time. So you get the, that idea that love uh, love does not envy, and that word is to be jealous, envious, or to have an uncontrolled emotional outburst. That's the negative. Love does not envy. Positively, it's patient and kind. Negatively, it doesn't envy. You don't, it's an absence of mental attitude sin. Now, you've heard some people probably say that, that, that love is an absence of mental attitude sins. One aspect of love is that you don't have mental attitude sins, but the other aspect of love is very positive in the way you think and act towards a person. 
You can't think, you can't act kindly, genuinely, if you're not thinking kindly or you're just being a hypocrite and you're two-faced. This can only be produced by God the Holy Spirit. Love does not parade itself, doesn't talk about itself, doesn't brag about its accomplishments. It's not focused on self. You can't love others when the focus when you're dominated by self-love and arrogance, and it's all about me, which is what your sin nature's orientation is. So people who don't who aren't regenerate, who don't have the Holy Spirit, who don't have any anything from the Word of God, that, no wonder that all the definitions in the dictionaries are emotion, because that's all they have. And emotion can only go so long, so far. And last, love is not puffed up. Interesting word, fusiao, it, it, it is a, an illustrative word. It's, it draws a picture. It's not puffed up, and it means to be conceited. Now, this same word is used at the beginning of this section in, uh, from chapter 8 through chapter uh, 14. The issue is dealing with various problems in the Corinthian church that all, stem, all seem to stem from arrogance. And in 1 Corinthians 8.1, uh, this was the basic problem. It said, knowledge makes arrogant. Literally, it's the same word, knowledge puffs up. The old King James, I think, translated it that way. Uh, knowledge makes arrogant, and it's gnosis. It's not epinosis. And it's because, and we've all seen this, and it doesn't matter what area or field you're in, uh, you get a little bit of knowledge and you're dangerous. So you get some knowledge when you're a freshman and then you think you know some things when you become a sophomore, which means a wise fool. It's well termed because there's that, that, that sense of arrogance. Woo, I'm, I'm somebody now. I made it through my first year of high school, first year of college, or first year of seminary. So knowledge can make you arrogant, but but there's no it's it's not tempered by by love and care with others, and, and this is a real problem with seminary students. And and I, you know I'm no no exception. I, I don't think any seminary students is that your your knowledge is going at a hundred miles an hour. Your knowledge accumulation, your spiritual growth is still going about three miles an hour. And so you get this load, you know a whole lot more, and you want to tell people and straighten people out, all kinds of things. So you, you just have to learn to humility. In 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love does not behave rudely. Now, we think of rude as being not having good manners, not being courteous, and that, that's part of the meaning here. But it has the idea of not doing things that are disgraceful or that are embarrassing or that shame someone. It's not going to shame the object of love. It's not going to disgrace them. It's not going to behave in a rude manner. And a lot of parents need to learn that you need to teach your, your kids good manners or they're going to have troubles developing love later on because... Uh, they've got to learn to be uh, selfless. And you can teach a lot about that even before they're believers just with some corporate discipline. 
So love does not behave rudely. Second, it does not seek its own. This is the idea of uh, zeteo, which means to put itself first. It's not putting itself first. I'm, you, you don't put yourself first. You're not the center of attention. And that's a real problem for a lot of people. They seem to always want to be the center of attention. And that just feeds their approbation lust. And we all have it to some degree. Some people have it more than others. But, but love doesn't seek what it wants. So in a relationship, whether it's in a corporate in- workplace or whether it's on, on a team in sports, or whether it is in a marriage, you're learning that it's not all about you and what you want to do and the getting your way in doing it. So it's not seeking its own. And then, uh, so we get another negative. It is not provoked. Notice how many of these descriptions of love are what it's not. And most of what it's not is the is trends of our sin nature, so that just shows what that what that conflict is. It's it, it's it's not provoked. In other words, it's not easily angered. It doesn't get upset easily. It doesn't uh, uh, scream and yell back. It's not irritable all the time. And then last, it thinks. It thinks no evil. The last part that's. That's that word logizomai that we've studied, which, which has to do with the idea of, of imputing wrong to somebody. So you're, you're, not, you're not in a position of weakness where you're always feeling like somebody else is doing wrong and always say, no, 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 it's always your fault. It's not. Only 90% of the time. I'm c- kidding. It's all of those just go against our natural self-absorption. Then we come to verse 6. It does not rejoice in iniquity. It it doesn't go along with evil. It doesn't overlook evil. It doesn't uh, uh, thrill with, with evil. So it doesn't rejoice in iniquity or evil that is being done to the object of love. But it rejoices... In the truth. So the word translated iniquity is the word adikia or unrighteousness. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in aletheia, the truth, truthfulness, integrity. That's the focus. For love to have value, it has to be based on integrity. And then we come to the last summary, which is very positive. And it states four things. It bears all things. This is the word stego. It's different from the word that you have over in Ephesians 4. That, that word there has to do with putting up with. This is, it, it protects or covers something. It doesn't discuss the flaws and failures of others. Recently, a situation that I became aware of was which, which, where this principle applies. And we run into this time and again. But in this particular situation, you had some parents who had a kid. Kid's married and is having a tough time. And so there's a, a family event. 
and the the kid shows up late and we say, well, why are, you, why are you late? Well, you know, we're not having a good time in a marriage right now, and so I, I just came, and the, other, the partner didn't come. And so one of the family members asked the mother, said, well, what's going on? Now, see, if you talk about your kids and a problem they're having, and they get the problem straightened out, now other people know about that problem. That's going to be in their mind. You don't want to do that. You, you're going to protect them. You know, that's the idea. Love does not go about uh, gossiping. You know, a lot of gossip things take place in, in prayer circles by saying, oh, you need to pray for my husband, you know. And so they're, they're talking about things that, that they shouldn't talk about. We don't share our dirty laundry with other people. Because it puts in their minds that, that somebody, a, a specific struggle that somebody has, and it, when they grow past it, that's still in their mind. And, and they're going to commit mental attitude sins when they think about that. And so we need to keep our mouth shut about a lot of stuff that we don't keep our mouth shut about. So bears all things, is it, it protects the object of love. And believes all things. Now, this isn't some sort of naive uh, situation where you just believe everything, but it, it's the idea of you're thinking positively rather than negatively. You know, some people believe everything negative that they might hear about their spouse or about somebody at work or whatever, but we should be more positive, believing positive things. We're we're hoping all things. We're, in other words, love is something that is looking for the good and not looking for the, that which is wrong. And then we come at the end to endures all things, which is the idea of put, putting up with stuff. We all fail. We're all married to people who fail. We all have friends who fail. We have parents who fail. We have uh, children who fail. And some of these people in our lives fail abominably. And we can't say, well, I, I just can't have anything to do with you anymore. Now, there's some situations where that's true. But most of the time, you know, we, we need to be forgiving. And we're going to get to this in Ephesians 4, that we are to graciously forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. And there's no asterisk there with a list of the things that, that you, you don't forgive them for. And forgiveness, we'll get to have to get to that, it means wiping the slate clean. Now, does that, does that mean putting yourself back in a, in a bad situation or a vulnerable situation where you can be uh, very wrongfully taken advantage of again? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. But you don't want to have mental attitude sins towards, towards that person. You don't want to have, uh, think about vengeance or vindictiveness or anger or gossip about them or anything like that. Um, okay, they did something wrong, you're going to forgive them, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be as central in my life as you were before, perhaps, because you don't want to put yourself back in that kind of a position. So those are some of the complexities, but it clearly removes mental attitude sense from, from, from the picture. And then the last statement he makes is that love never fails. Now, what happens in, I've drawn out this circle here of love. 
you have these various descriptions. You have these negatives. So, positively, love rejoices in integrity. It's steadfast, it's kind, and... and um, I have rejoicing and integrity there twice. Uh, so those are three positives that are there. But the rest are all related to negatives. Not rejoicing in wrongdoing, not imputing evil to somebody, not conceited, not arrogant, not envious, not self-absorbed, not easily angered. All those knots relate to things in our sin nature. So we have to learn to not be self-absorbed and replace it with being focused on God. We have to be occupied with Christ and occupied with God. And that's the only way we're going to get to a point where we uh, put these things outside of us. So this is what we've learned about love. We've learned from what the Lord said in John 13, 34, and 35 that love is, is, I think it's the ultimate apologetic. It's the ultimate defense of the faith. What, that Christians have genuine love for one another. And disciples, specifically, this is the evidence that they are disciples, is that they have love for one another. Uh, they're growing, maturing. They are, that love is produced by God the Holy Spirit. And we learn that no matter what talents or gifts or abilities that we have or what we may do for the Lord, if we don't do it on the basis of uh, biblical love, then it doesn't count for eternity. And we learn that the various characteristics run afoul of our self-centered sin natures. And so we have to think about it. The Christian life, it doesn't just happen. Some people have had the idea that if you just confess your sin and you're back in fellowship, the Holy Spirit's going to make your decisions for you and everything's going to be easy. And that's not true. That's mysticism. You get back in fellowship, now it's going to be hard because you have to make the decisions to use the spiritual skills to stay there. And that works for two or three seconds, and then you're back out again. And that's the process of growth, because when you're a baby, uh, you act like a baby. But you'll grow eventually out of it, and it takes time, and it takes a lot of time in the Word and a lot of focus and conscientious thought about, well, how I really apply the Word, or do I just uh, sort of pre-bound, confess my sin ahead of time and, and uh, go ahead and do it. Because we're too lazy to really think about, I need to change the way I do things. Not, not, not. It's not legalism. Now you have a lot of a lot of Christian groups. It's just legalism. But but these are the commands we have in Scripture. Legalism is if I do it this way on my own without the Holy Spirit, I'm just pulling myself up by my spiritual bootstraps, and God's going to bless me for it. No, that's remember He's already blessed us with what? Some of the spiritual blessings. Isn't that what? Paul didn't say it that way? With all spiritual blessings, so you can't do anything to get more. They're already there. But we have to grow to maturity so that God's going to let us have some of them. It's like a dad who buys his two-year-old kid a Porsche. Doesn't give him the keys, though, until he's ready for it. 
but it's still the kid's portion. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the things that we've studied here and to think through the fact that we are to love one another. This is a command it's expected of us, but we can't do it on our own. We can't sit down and wake up in the morning and write down the three things we're going to do today. We're going to love our neighbor. We're going to love one another. We're going to love you, and that's develop a plan of action just how we're going to do it. How we do it is to walk by the Spirit. We get into your Word and let your Word get into our soul, and we apply it, and we fail, and we apply it, and we fail, and we confess, and we apply it, and we fail, and and we slowly begin to grow. And God, the Holy Spirit, works on our lives to open our eyes to what's going on. And over the course of time, we begin to see that that we truly are growing and maturing as a believer, not only in our understanding of your Word and what it means but in terms of the difference it makes in how we think about people and how we react to people and how we react to circumstances. So, Father, we pray that you would make us aware of these things and that we would be responsive and understand that that it's just part of the growth process. Father, we pray for anyone here or anyone who's listening that has never trusted Christ as Savior that they would come to a realization that salvation is not something we can ever accomplish for ourselves, but you accomplished it for us. When Jesus said, it is finished, he said, it is completed. Nothing can be added to it, nothing more. It's all done. It's paid for in full. And all we are to do is accept that as a free gift, to trust in Christ, to believe in him. And if we believe in him, we have everlasting life, which can never be taken from us. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things, that we may be a living example uh, as as disciples, that your word works, that our lives are a testimony to the reality of the truth of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.